the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, again, you can follow us at danproftshow.com, on Twitter, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show. Podcasts are located on my website as well as iTunes and Spotify as well. Just a little programming note there for your listening convenience. Additionally, uh, we'll, we'll start the show with the trial of the century, where it stands now with House managers moving through, the continue to move through their opening statements in eight-hour chunks. As Ruffaldo Emerson said, first the language is corrupted, then man is corrupted. He must have had Adam Schiff in mind. One of Adam Schiff's more offensive, purposeful misdirection plays was during uh, his many hours of of offering of argument, the whole get over it, uh, taking uh, a line that acting chief of staff, acting White House chief of staff Mick Mulvaney had said at uh, the press conference where he seemed to admit that there was a quid pro quo and uh, twisting it into meaning something that it didn't, Adam Schiff. Should the Congress just get over it? Should the American people just come to expect that our president's will corruptly abuse their office to seek the help of a foreign power to cheat in our elections. Should we just get over it? Is that what we've come to? I hope and pray that the answer is no. We cannot allow a president to withhold military aid from an ally at war for illicit help in a really election campaign. Yeah, keep forgetting the uh, additional misstatements that follow that little device of should we just get over this, should we just get over that. Chris Wallace weighed in, so uh, we didn't have to on the the use of that phrase and the bastardization of it by Schiff. I just want to make one point about a specific line that that, uh, Adam Schiff used a lot. He kept using the line from Mick Mulvaney, get over it, and saying, well, are we going to just get over it? Um, Before I interviewed Mick Mulvaney the week of his problematic news conference, I went back and looked at that statement uh, in, in detail, and that's not what Mick Mulvaney said at all. He did say get over it, but he was talking specifically about the fact that there is politics in foreign policy, and specifically that when Barack Obama is conducting his foreign policy, it's going to have a different political flavor and a different policy agenda than when Donald Trump is. And each president, they're elected, uh, is fulfilling his mandate. He wasn't saying that this kind of quid pro quo, get over it, just accept it. Uh, He was talking specifically about the idea of of policy and politics in a foreign policy agenda. So, quite frankly, uh, and I think that Adam Schiff made a, you know, a, a, an effective argument for his side of the case, but he completely misrepresented what Mick Mulvaney said. Sure, it's a lot easier to make effective arguments when you can just connect dots that don't connect by fabricating information or meaning. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Eric Felton, RealClearInvestigations.com. Eric is a correspondent for Real Clear Investigations. He's a columnist for The Washington Examiner, contributor to The Wall Street Journal, and also an accomplished jazz singer and trombonist. You don't 
get that a lot uh, in the intersection of politics. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, how you doing? Good. So I wanted to uh, pick up on this piece you did for RealClearInvestigations.com where you looked into some of the language, the language that repeats throughout uh, both the rhetoric and the brief that House managers filed with the Senate uh, that they're now arguing, continuing to argue as we speak. Uh, So pick some of your favorite recurring phrases, uh, overwhelming evidence, quid pro quo, not in the report, but certainly in the rhetoric, debunked conspiracy theories. Uh, There's so many to choose from. Right. Debunked conspiracy theories, uh, discredited conspiracy theories. Uh, uh, one of the things that's interesting, it's it's not that um, uh, that that the language is always going to be wrong, which is the call for investigation into what happened uh, or didn't happen in Ukraine um, involves trying to find out which of the theories, if any, of what happened in Ukraine are correct. And the House impeachment report um, just assumes that every, everything that the president asked about is wrong and malicious and does that by using language that, that assumes the outcome of the investigation rather than um, doing the work of investigation. So if every time you talk about a question that of what happened in Ukraine, that you say it's a debunked conspiracy theory of what happened in Ukraine, you're not actually taking seriously any of the possibilities. I mean, some, some of the um, theories of what happened in Ukraine, you know, are conspiracy theories are not to be believed. But if you use that language of always just referring to them as debunked, discredited you know you need to actually sometimes do the discrediting rather than just announce that something is discredited Schiff and the others they're just asserting things rather than arguing them that's that's a big difference and it's sort of consistent with uh what pat cipollone had said on opening day uh white house counsel which is not only do you not have a case here you don't even have charges uh the wall street journal picked up on this uh, yesterday, talking about how uh, corrupt purposes, quote unquote, is the new language of the House managers. They don't assert any specific action by Trump was an abuse of power, violation of law. They don't deny it can a- delay aid to a foreign country or ask a foreign leader to investigate corruption. Presidents do that all the time. Instead, they assert in their first impeachment article, abuse of power, that Trump is guilty of, bu- of abuse of power because he committed those acts for corrupt purposes. So it goes to his mens rea, his mind, his motivation. And uh, they don't have much beyond the transcript, which we've been arguing about for the last six months, to support that claim. So they're just asserting that he was motivated to bad ends. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things is that uh, the House and its impeachment report um, relies very heavily on the language of the Constitution that says that the House has sole power of impeachment. And they take that to mean that, that there's sort of an um, sole power to determine what's right, what's wrong, what's fair, what isn't fair, what what whether there's going to be any due process or not any due process. That you know these sort of fundamental fairness issues that are um, 
uh, core to the Constitution sort of don't apply in impeachment because the House has sole power to do what it wants to do with regard to impeachment. Um, and one of the interesting lines in the House impeachment report um, is that the president is not due any benefit of the doubt. And so at any time where there's uncertainty as to what or why the president did something, um, the House has made it clear that they're going to interpret it in the worst possible light. Um, and that, again, is sort of con inconsistent with fundamental constitutional norms. But because of the sole power clause, the House is saying we aren't really bound by fundamental normal constitutional fairness issues because of this quirk of the language in the impeachment clause. Well, the, the other thing that they do is to impute upon the president, uh, quote unquote, conspiracy theories that he does not support. So, for example, uh, Schiff has repeatedly talked about the conspiracy theory that uh, it was Ukraine, not Russia, that interfered in the 2016 election. That's not the president's position. He's repeatedly said, yes, I believe the intel community that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. I don't necessarily think it had an impact on the outcome, but they interfered. But there also could have been other people that interfered. And there was reporting to that effect uh, in Politico and other outlets about Ukrainian actors that tried to intercede as well. So so that's not even the president's position that Schiff is arguing against. Right. And that's the classic straw man, which is you sort of put words in the, somebody's mouth and then you knock down those words because the words you've put in someone's mouth are easy to knock down. You know, to, to this point that it, that it would be quite reasonable for there to be both efforts from Russia to interfere with our election and efforts from Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia, you know, locked in conflict, looking to counter one another at every turn. If the Ukrainians knew the Russians were trying to influence the American election, it might be perfectly natural for Ukraine to take some efforts to counter them by trying to influence the election from their point of view. So I'm not saying that that happened beyond what we know Alexandra Chalupa, Ukrainian-American, was involved with trying to um, get Ukrainian officials to take actions that would benefit Hillary Clinton. But uh, beyond that, who knows what exactly was done, but it would be perfectly consistent with sort of geopolitics for Ukraine to take some action, knowing that Russia was taking some action. It's not that one or the other is acting. The notion that both were acting actually makes more sense in just a general geopolitical sense. I, I want to uh, come back uh, and uh, break down a couple, since we're in the business of sort of breaking down the language and the rhetorical devices that are being used, a couple of more uh, offerings from the House Democrat managers. When we come back with Eric Felton, correspondent for RealClearInvestigations.com. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Eric Felton, correspondent for RealClearInvestigations.com, columnist for the Washington Examiner. His uh, piece, RealClearInvestigations.com, no slam debunk 
analyzing the Dems' repetitive impeach text. Uh, and I, I want to uh, start with this offering uh, on Tuesday from Val Demings, who's a Democrat from Florida, one of the House managers. She uh, bringing back some of the kernels from the House impeachment inquiry, Gordon Sondland's testimony, Demings uh, offering this. Chief Justice Roberts, senators and counsel for the president. Now I want to talk to you about the White House meeting that President Trump offered to President Zelensky during their first phone call in April. But as you know, that meeting has not been scheduled. It was never scheduled. Ambassador Sondland testified that after the May 23rd meeting with with President Trump, it became clear that President Zelensky would not be invited to the Oval Office until he announced the opening of investigations that would benefit President Trump's re-election. During his testimony, Ambassador Sondland stressed that it was a clear quid pro quo. Let's listen. I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. Okay, and that's all she played. Now, that during his same uh, turn at the wheel in the House, Sondland's testimony, he also had this exchange with Republican House member Michael Turner from uh, Ohio. He says that they weren't tied, that the aid was not tied. And, and I didn't say they were they were conclusively tied either. I said I was presuming it. Okay, and so the president never told you they were tied. So your testimony, his testimony is consistent and the president did not tie aid to investigations. That's correct. So there was a quid pro quo, but I was presuming that in point of fact there wasn't. And then when I actually talked to the president directly, he told me this. But I believe I just asked him an open-ended question, Mr. Chairman. What do you want from Ukraine? I keep hearing all these different ideas and theories and this and that. What do you want? And it was a very short, abrupt conversation. He was not in a good mood. And he just said, I want nothing. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Tell Zelensky to do the right thing. Something to that effect. So, uh, again, Eric, uh, here we have uh, the classic cherry picking of testimony that comports with the conclusion you want to draw without responding to the testimony offered by the source you're using that contradicts the portion of it that you played. Right. And then there's also just, you know, characterization that then gets treated as though it is explicitly what was said. So within the House impeachment report, you know, the assertion is that by asking for there to be investigation that includes looking at uh, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's actions in Ukraine um, and Hunter Biden's profitable board membership of of the energy company Burisma, that by asking for that, it would have a beneficial effect on the president's reelection chances by hurting Joe Biden. So that's the assertion. But then within the impeachment report, they characterize the president as saying, help me win an election. When he never said, help me win an election to the Ukrainians, he said, among other things to look into and investigate, investigate what happened with the Bidens in Ukraine. And you can make the case that you want to make uh, might be that that had the effect of helping the president with his reelection. But that's a very different thing than assuming in your question that he said explicitly, help me with an election. 
Right. And that's one of the things that happens throughout the impeachment report is the sort of assuming in the question the thing that is supposedly being debated and asked about in the question. Well, and that's when they're being subtle. I mean, what Val Demings has said, the part of that clip we played that will be glossed over by most about the uh, meeting with Zelensky being predicated on this investigation into Burisma and the Bidens. In point of fact, President Trump invited Zelensky to the White House with no preconditions on three occasions. We have the date, April 21st, May 29th, July 25th. They met at the first opportunity at the U.N. So, I mean, there's just statements that are so easy to prove to be untrue. It's remarkable the brazenness with which they're made. And do you think that the president's counsel are taking that seriously enough and uh, and dealing with that in their opportunities to speak to the Senate? Well, I mean, it's an interesting uh choice they have, depending on how, I guess, compelling they believe that House Democrats are by the end of their opening arguments. You know, because Adam Schiff is there and he's enjoying his star turn, that they're going to use their full 24 hours to rinse and repeat everything they said uh, on opening day. It might be interesting if uh, the president's defense team take the opposite approach and say, look, there is so nothing here. Let's give each of our four guys, Seculo, Dershowitz, Starr, and Cipollone, Let's each take an hour, take different aspects of it, and let's call it a a day. We'll see the other 20 hours back to the other side because they have, again, going back to what Cipollone said on opening day, you don't— you not only don't have a case, you don't even have any charges. Well, it, it is interesting in watching the uh, hearing. You do get the sense that less would be more. There's a case that for the uh, the House managers to make. They've got the case they want to make, and it doesn't necessarily help making that case to make it five, ten times right. and merely add extra outrage to its expression with each repeat. And I don't know that it is appealing to the Senate, but more importantly, I think that it um, may not be particularly attractive or interesting to the public at large. Exactly. What What is the mind share that the public has for this, particularly if they tune in for a few moments and then they tune back in and they're hearing the same arguments and, and same contentions from just different people? I, I think that's right. I mean, how many crossword puzzles can Rand Paul do? Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's why I, I think I think and, and also too. For, given the, the you know the audience, which really is the American people, but the jury, which is the Senate, I mean, how many minds are being changed? How many senators were that uh, uh, tuned out to what was going on in the House that so much of this is uh, new to them? I, I suspect very few. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I was giving a, a talk on um, Tuesday evening when when some of the uh, debate was happening. And what was interesting is there were a lot of people, fairly you know, savvy people about politics, who thought, wait, it's, it's still going on because there had been one of Schumer's amendments had been debated at length and then voted on. And they didn't quite realize that there were, um, you know, more than one of these deba- of these um, amendments. And the amendments were basically the same, but for one for the State Department, one for the Department of Defense, et cetera, moving through all of these different agencies of government. And so if you tuned in at five in the afternoon and if you tuned in at 10 o'clock at night, you were going to hear almost the exact same arguments being made, except being made with regard to 
the Department of Defense now rather than the State Department. Right. And I think for the average person interested in what's going on who tunes in and finds that kind of, you know, sort of repetition, um, their interest in the proceedings is going to diminish rather rapidly. He is Eric Felton, correspondent for RealClearInvestigations.com, columnist for the Washington Examiner, contributor to Wall Street Journal, and an accomplished jazz singer and trombonist to boot. Eric, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Andy Warhol, Kanye West, and Marco Rubio. I feel like Ed McMahon setting up Karnak the Magnificent, but I'm not. I'm Dan Prof setting up Michael Warren Davis, the editor of Crisis Magazine, contributor to American Conservative, Spectator USA, and First Things, who has written this rather interesting piece, as you can imagine from the three names I mentioned, that he links together called The Warhol Effect in Crisis Magazine that I want to discuss with him. We're pleased to be joined by Michael Warren Davis. Thank you for being with us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Hello, sir. How are you? Good, good. So um, you uh, take uh, Andy Warhol's Art to the Woodshed. Now, you're not the first one to do it, but I think you're the first one to connect it to the two other gentlemen that I mentioned. Give us the connection between, <laughs> between Andy Warhol, Kanye West, and Marco Rubio. Well, when I was uh, working in my, my the previous publication that I worked for, um, the news broke that the Vatican was going to host a exhibition of Andy Warhol's art, and I was asked to do a piece on it, and so I did, talking about you know because Andy Warhol was uh, in many senses a, a devout Catholic. He uh, he went to daily mass. He Something a lot of people don't his know. Mother every yeah, morning. Yeah, yeah, and it is actually quite a fascinating story. Um, but uh, and one of the things that I said in the article was that, you know, <laughs> bear in mind that in addition to these outward practices of piety, he was also, uh, you know, one of the worst artists who ever lived. And my my editors didn't like that part of the article. And so they took it out and they wanted it to just be this this hagiography because, you know, Warhol was in the news. And this was around the same time that the um, I don't know if you remember the New York Met Gala where all these, you know, blasphemous and obscene Catholic costumes were being paraded around mm. uh, the New York you know, high society. And they, we were sort of... Now they're on Netflix. Uh, my editors want... What's that? Now they're on Netflix. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, but they, this, and this was, yeah, and there's this, there is this sort of cultural fascination with the, the Catholic Church that's sort of arose and, arisen out of nowhere. Um, but it, it really never gives a, an, an accurate depiction of what the Catholic Church is really like. And the, this was the problem with, I thought, the, the, Warhol, the Warhol piece that I wrote that was eventually published under my name, but with, with this a bit taken out, which is that, you know, by any measure of Catholic or conservative artistic standards, Warhol was an absolute fraud. Uh, and this, and this really, I, I brooded. I was a, I was sort of a low-level employee, so I didn't really have much say over. I didn't really want to rock the boat. But this uh, really sort of, I was, I brooded on this for a couple of years until I wrote the piece that we're discussing now, the Warhol effect. Uh, because I, I, I've noticed that there's this trend that every time, you know, anything Catholic or conservative gains any sort of currency in popular culture, 
all these Catholic and conservative pundits just sort of, you know, throw themselves down in, in bow and worship of, of, of popular culture and say, no, look, we're part of this too. We have this guy, we have Andy Warhol. He's, you know, he might be a, a decadent freak, but you know, he's our decadent freak. And this means that we have a place uh, in this crumbling cultural art edifice. And, uh, and that is again something that has been really weighing on me because uh, it's the, we have this I think really self-defeating desire to be popular, and again the proper response to something like Warhol is that his his piety, such as it is, is interesting. But the more important thing is that very few people since the Vandals and the Goths sacked Rome, very few people have done more to destroy Western civilization than Andy Warhol. <laughs> and uh, and I connected. This is this is what I call the Warhol effect. This this uh, this self defeating desire to be popular, to cling to popular culture, instead of giving a robust traditional critique uh, of our society and and of uh, the the quote unquote uh, you know cultural artifacts that it produces. And uh, the other instance that was really on my mind. <laughs> I don't know if you if you or your readers even were aware or listeners were even aware of this, but when Kanye West released that. Uh, that strange uh, Christian rap album. Uh, and he was, I mean, you know, all across the conservative and Christian media, he was like hailed as the, as the great savior of popular culture. He was going to, he was going to bring Christ back into the media. This is a guy who, you know, a couple of, just a couple of records ago, thought that he himself was Jesus. <laughs> and the fact that, the fact that he now believes that Jesus is in fact Jesus. That's progress. We we're supposed to take this as, you know, we we're supposed to, again, bow down in worship of Kanye West. Oh, he's our guy. He's the, and uh, it, people were focusing on him, the strangest details. Remember, Kanye West is a complete insane megalomaniac. He's literally driven mad by his own egotism. And he was asking the people that he was co cooperating on this album with not to not to sleep with anyone that they weren't married to while they were performing with him. It was so odd. It was things that even, you know, a, a Catholic uh, artist wouldn't wouldn't even think to do. He was just he's just completely nuts. So. All right. We're going to continue this conversation with Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine. On the other side, we'll pick up with more on Kanye. Yeah. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Michael Warren Davis of Crisis Magazine, and I want to go back to the discussion we were having about Kanye West. Just with respect to West for a minute, too, you know, part of the uh, dynamic with West more so than Warhol is anybody who is being excoriated by the people who ridicule Catholics, conservatives, Christians, you know, you're, we're, we want to rally to the defense of them because they're being attacked by the same people. And maybe there'll be some transference where we can convert Kanye West and his star power to leverage our actual belief system. And that that's probably a fool's errand. But isn't that part of uh, perhaps the thinking? I think that absolutely. I, I don't think that anyone was doing it uh, in any malicious way. We do want that dragon energy, right? We want we want the, the Catholic Church to be filled with his his uh, beatific dragon energy. Uh, and <laughs> well, but as I just, said, just as a piece, you know, he, just his audience, probably not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, and look, I mean, if 
if if that was going to if that was if if there was a real chance of that happening, if there was a real chance that Kanye West music was going to turn people, you know, to Christ in in any way, shape, or form, that would be awesome. But as I said in the piece, you know, he Kanye West did come out and and say that he was converting to Christianity and that he and he did come out and endorse Trump. But the thing is, with his fans, if he converted to Theosophy and endorsed Mary Ann Williamson, no one would bat an eye. That's just Kanye West being insane. And he has this long track record of, of bouncing. He's constantly reinventing himself culturally, morally, politically. No one really takes his, his views very seriously, but he shouldn't. And so we're, you know, for Catholics and Christians to hop on the bandwagon, and more importantly, to, to uh, what, my concern is that we look at this and we say, oh, the tide is turning. There's still a chance for us to save this edifice. And <laughs> look, the record that he published, I forget what it's called, Christ is King or something like that, it got panned by, by, you know, by the, all, every music critic that listened to it. The only people who liked the album were these Catholic Christian conservatives who don't listen to rap, who don't like rap. For a very good reason. They didn't like the art, but they liked the thought behind it. They liked the thought that there was this rapper uh, producing a Christian album. Um, but it's it's nonsense. It's not. It, 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 Kanye West can't be uh, a great, you know, religious evangelizer for the same reason that Marco Rubio can't be a great political evangelizer, because he's completely unmoored and he's slippery as a snake. Well, now Marco. That was where I, yeah. So Marco. So yeah. Now fold Marco Rubio in because you're specifically talking about the. Uh, some of the rave reviews he got in Catholic circles from his speech uh, last end of last year at Catholic University calling for a new kind of capitalism, common good capitalism. And I thought it was a really great speech, and I was really fired up. And when he, I think it was the First Things article that was published first, where he was talking about, you know, we need, we need an economics of the common good. And he was talking about Catholic social teaching and uh, using... Uh, a, a moderate amount of uh, state power to protect working families, to protect the working class. Uh, and I thought, this is fantastic. This could really be a new beginning for Catholic conservatism. And so we, at Crisis, we ran a, a very, uh, an article very strongly praising Senator Rubio's article. And then he gave a speech at Catholic University, basically reiterating the same things. And I was inundated with submissions asking to you know, give him uh, glory, laud, and honor. And I spoke to everyone, I said, hold on, I, I don't, I'm, I'm very excited about this, but I want to see, when, when is he going to translate it into legislation? Uh, and, you know, he, and then I think he wrote a third article, gave a third speech, and again, inundated with things. I said, no, 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 we're not going to publish anything yet, because I, I want to see him, you know, talk is cheap. But if he wants to be the, you know, the Messiah of Catholic social teaching, then he has to he has to put legislation forward in the Senate, whether it's you know raise the the minimum wage to a family wage, so that, you know so that ever, so that we can have uh, one you know a, a one breadwinner household, anything like that, anything paid family leave, whatever, anything, and it didn't happen. It still hasn't happened. You know, a couple of months later, Senator Rubio has introduced quite a bit of legislation into the Senate, um, but has but absolutely none of it has broken from the rank and file of Republican Christians. And I, and I said to myself, this is classic Marco Rubio. He ran for the Florida State Senate as a moderate. He ran for U.S. Senate as a movement conservative. He ran for president in 2016 as a neoconservative Jeb Bush disciple, you know, the young, friendly Cuban face of Jeb Bush. And, uh, and now he's reinventing himself as sort of a, a conservative, clerical, Catholic, whatever. And 
it's it's just he's just full of baloney. And everyone anyone that's followed Marco Rubio, at least since 2016, knows that he's willing to say and do anything to get elected. And this again, this is the Warhol effect because across Catholic and conservative media, secular, religious, everyone who has any interest in in uh, in this idea of a common good conservatism, and it's it's definitely a hot button issue. But Marco Rubio saw that this was the new thing, and he latched onto it. And, you know, people were throwing themselves down like palm leaves with Christ entering Jerusalem, <laughs> uh, w- w- wanting to, you know, <laughs> please let me serve you. I don't want, you know, just un- unqualified, uncritical adulation of everything that he said and wrote. And when he stopped saying and writing it, they just forgot about it. No one, no one, there was no critical introspection. No one was thinking to themselves, Maybe we kind of jumped the gun a little bit. Maybe we should have thought about this more quickly. Or more, um, more, we should have thought this out a bit more. None of that. They just jumped right into the next thing. It was just the, you know, and this is the, the this this refusal to, to to critically engage with people who make sort of ge- generous or favorable noises in the direction of conservative Christianity. It, it it sustains our faith in this political, cultural system that we have in this country that does not serve uh, conservatives and Christians. Uh, and it, and it, it's, it staves off the, the, the moment that we have to reach eventually where we say we've lost the culture war. Well, and the Republican Party... Yeah, well, well, I, I just... So with respect to Rubio, it's interesting because I don't... I did not uh, uh, receive Rubio's speech with fanfare. I, I don't... I'm... I'm not on board with common good capitalism. I don't think capital needs a modifier. Uh, and, you know, it's very reminiscent when pe- people start sort of redefining words. It's like uh, George W. Bush's uh, uh, compassionate conservatism. Conservatism oh, isn't yeah. compassionate when practiced, right? So it, the redefinition always raises red flags for me. But I do appreciate the fact that you're holding Rubio and some of these to account because we, we do have this problem that you're identifying. Okay, uh, Michael, we'll hold it right there. I want to pick up right there when we get back with Michael Warren Davis on The Dan Prof Show. back with Michael Warren Davis of Crisis Magazine, and I want to go back to the discussion we were having about redefining words. You have to have standards, and you have to know um, who, it, who you're rallying behind before you just uh, rush, headlong, uh, rush in headlong. I, I, think that's, I think that's healthy. I think that's, you know, the, the ability to exercise restraint in the face of something that looks attractive. I mean, to borrow from uh, a, a line from a Fuel song, everything that shimmers in this world is sure to fade. Yeah, that's right. Laren is a great example. The other one that uh, I, I use often and that was brought up in the comments section of my article, and I was very pleased about this, was Milo Yiannopoulos. 
And, yeah. you know, for those of us who knew Milo before he became, he, he got all of the star power, a lot of us have been saying, you know, this guy's a complete fraud. He's not, he's been, he's been, you know, pinging back and forth on his identity, his, his ideology. You know, this couldn't possibly end well. He's, he's he, another one that's just even more shamefacedly than any of the previous examples. A guy who is absolutely obsessed with and driven by his own ambition, his desire for popularity. And when, you know, and the, the, the more outrageous his, uh, his antics became the more people loved him and, and said, you know, and it's the same reason, we, you know, the, the, yeah. the Republican Party has a hard time with, with young women. So you have Tommy Lahren. The Republican Party has a hard time with homosexuals. So you get Miley Yiannopoulos. He was our ready-made token gay guy. And we were, you know, everyone was so excited to have him on board. And we, you know, we didn't have that kind of campy, sassy humor that a lot of liberal pundits have because there are more gay. And I, I, I get that's funny. Anyone who could see the, the, the forest from the trees could see that Milo is, again, deranged, unhinged. The, the thing that finally you know, brought him down was when he came out and said, I'm grateful that I was, I was molested by a priest because it, it, it introduced me to the, the wonderful world of, of pederasty. And that was, thank God, yeah, something was completely yeah. beyond the pale. Yeah, uh, I mean, and that was what ended his career. Well, right, like, pe- people need to see, uh, I don't know, people need to see, uh, um, uh, what am I think? Uh, the Music Man. <laughs> people, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't know, people need to, to, this needs to be part of our education system. More Broadway play or something there's actually a lot of lessons from some of them like uh, uh, like Harold Hill for example um, and I also think this also just going back to the uh, Warhol thing and art I mean it reminds me of C.S. Lewis uh, talking about how you know we, the beauty we seek and it's right to seek beauty but it's something we'll never fully find in this world because uh, we're not made for this world um, uh, so you know so the, the Warhol thing and tying that in with West you know who's an artist of a different sort I suppose um, although some perhaps commonality with Warhol in terms of quality, and then Rubio, uh, who's I think more of a Harold Hill. Anyway, I, I thought the co- the connection between the three men and this whole uh, uh, willingness to suspend what you otherwise believe your, your your healthy skepticism of what you otherwise believe to be true and like to, would like to see advanced because something becomes popular is a really really important argument, and you can't have enough examples when they're accurate, and I think these three are. So we appreciate that. He is Michael Warren Davis, editor of Crisis Magazine, contributor to the American Conservative, Spectator USA, and First Things. I'll tweet out his piece, The Warhol Effect, at crisismagazine.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael Warren Davis. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can follow us, danprofshow.com, podcast, iTunes, as well as Spotify, Twitter, at Dan Prof Show, and at Dan Prof. Uh, picking up on uh, the 2020 election, remember that, against the backdrop of this uh, Senate impeachment trial. Pleased to be joined by Curtis Mills. Curtis is a senior writer at American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com, and he's got a uh, provocative uh, comparison in terms of uh, what 2020 is shaping up to be reminiscent of, and that is uh, 2004. Curtis, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. 
Yes. Hey, thanks for having me. So, uh, all right. So give me the uh, extension of the parallel uh, who plays the role of John Kerry, who plays the role of John Edwards and so on and so forth, 2004 to 2020. Right. Well, thanks. Well, uh, you know, if you want more in depth on this, just check out the article. But what I would say is, first, uh, templates are obviously flawed ways of looking at any event uh, past or uh, in historical uh, but I do think uh, it's worth revisiting the last time an incumbent president um, ran for re-election and the struggles the Democratic Party had to uh, decide on a nominee that was most appropriate to take that guy on. Uh, so I think there's a pretty clear parallel between a couple of the candidates in 04 and a couple of the Democratic candidates now. Uh, the putative frontrunner front uh, is Joe Biden, a longtime senator, a uh, man of Washington, moderate, uh, has uh, strong relationships with the, with the party's African-American base, uh, but uh, it has a, you know, what, what we would call in politics an enthusiasm gap. Uh, going down the list. Uh, well, also, Amy too, just, 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 just for a second on Joe Biden, I mean, one, yeah. I mean, he's a moderate now. <laughs> During his time in the Senate, he was hardly considered that. And it is it is the the, the interest, other interesting thing about this, comparing uh, John Kerry to Joe Biden, is that John Kerry is a surrogate for Joe Biden right now. And uh, right. Yeah. I mean, they're so, very close. Yeah. So I mean, uh, given their know, given their and, and they also and they still have they both still seem to have problems figuring out exactly what their record was with respect to the war mm-hmm. in Iraq. Yeah. Also a good parallel that I did not mention uh, that. Biden and Kerry both tried to present themselves as foreign policy realists, and maybe they were sincere on that during the campaign, uh, but they ended up voting for a lot of these wars they said they thought were mistakes. So that's also a comparison. Um, you know, and I, I think it's also worth considering the, the personal relationship between the two men. I, I don't think they're, uh, to my knowledge, terribly close, but they are friends, mm-hmm. uh, and they do represent a certain perspective in the Democratic Party. Uh, Biden was a prominent surrogate for Kerry in 04. Uh, and I, I believe it's a matter of record that uh, if uh, Kerry had won the presidency in 04, that Biden would have been the top candidate for secretary of state. And of course, Kerry became secretary of state under Vice President Biden. And so there's all these these all these parallels. And even this year, Kerry looked at running uh, or last year, this this election cycle, Kerry looked at running, uh, but ended up taking a pass uh, because he uh, ceded the floor to Joe Biden. And now part of that is obviously friendship. And part of that is obviously the, the real politique. There's only uh, sort of one lane for these, you know, um, uh, Obama cabinet alumni. And I think you saw that with uh, Eric Holder, the former AG, also not getting in. Um, but if you want me to keep going, yeah, I, yeah, I would yeah, say... Please. Who's, people, who's John Edwards? Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I believe I said... Uh, uh, you know, someone like Amy Klobuchar it can be compared to uh, Dick Gephardt, which is like, you know, on paper, this is what the party wants. You know, in 04, they wanted to moderate. They wanted to stretch the map into the Midwest. Uh, you know, maybe the Democrats could win Missouri. That's where Gephardt was from. Same thing with, with Klobuchar. Uh, the Democrats know they need to win back the upper Midwest. Uh, Klobuchar is from a uh, upper Midwestern state that stayed Democratic. But that Minnesota race was a lot closer than people appreciate. I believe Trump only lost by about two percentage points. And if, you know, Trump expanded the map, they could actually lose Minnesota hypothetically. So Klobuchar is, is, is very much like Gephardt. And, and like Gephardt, um, she uh, could end up on the ticket, uh, especially with someone like uh, like like Biden. But I think even even a Bernie uh, would, would 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 look very heavily at her. And uh, and uh, yeah, and and it sort of has the same charisma deficit that Gephardt had, which prevented him from really ever catching fire, even though he had big labor support at the time. Right. And then so the obvious other um, low hanging fruits there are uh, Bernie, the youth candidate, uh, Vermonter, uh, you know uh, Howard Dean. 
uh, you know, you could, be, you could maybe it would be quibble with this and say that the trajectory has gone the opposite way, where Bernie looked like he was fading for a while and is actually picking up steam now, uh, versus Dean was 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 dominant throughout the, the the year leading up to the primary and then collapsed before the election. But you know, we're all kind of just uh, you know uh, speculating here. And then finally, you could look at someone like Buttigieg, who kind of came out of nowhere, uh, is similar to like John Edwards. But the question is, does he really have the juice to be the nominee, and is he is he more likely to be in the cabinet or the vice presidential slot? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And what about the the dynamic between, uh, say, the Joe Biden versus Trump matchup? If that ends up being the matchup to continue with this uh, parallel narrative, well, I will say I've been as I've been as bullish as uh, anyone on uh, on Biden, but uh, he is doing his he's doing his his ready best to to, to cede the nomination <laughs> yes. to somebody else. You really have to. I mean, look, I, I mean, like I think if people investigate. Um, you know any of this stuff like you know he's, he's had a stutter his whole career he's, he's always he's never had you know he's not the easiest public speaker although i do think he has a certain charisma anyone who's been in a, a room with him really knows he can carry a room but that being said i mean he's, he's in some ways he's you know he's, he's repeating the mistakes of, of clinton right now where he's just running this somnolent campaign and say what you will i mean donald trump is is, is up there in years but but he seems to have he, he the high energy thing isn't out of nowhere. He really does have this uh, rapacious appetite for campaigning that, that that Biden and Clinton both didn't have. So if Biden were to be the nominee, um, I think the distinction uh, between th- this race and the one that Kerry ran uh, is that the country is, has changed. Uh, you know, it's demographically more favorable to the Democrats, and uh, so maybe you know Kerry is enough. Um, and then additionally, you know, we have we haven't we had, we had been just a tactic we were in '04. And the deference to the incumbent president probably isn't quite as high. The interesting thing about Biden, too, is, um, you know, there seems to be a little bit of uh, uh, time has passed him by in terms of his real value add. His real value add was that uh, he has was perceived, at least branded to be, you know, Scranton Joe uh, guy, Mm -hmm. working class guy, takes the train to and from Delaware. But but the Democrat Party isn't the working class party anymore, largely, and it's a populist party. And so he seems to be sort of a man without a real comfort zone. And he's he's the establishment's default candidate for lack of a comfort zone because all the others are there's so much concern about their electability. I, I don't think he's fully the established default candidate because he's already seen significant defections. Uh, to someone like Buttigieg, right? Like this is not yeah. quite. I mean, I would not compare this to 2012, where it's basically 2012 the establishment anointed Mitt Romney and held its breath, right, right. and then ended up win- winning out. Versus Biden has is not. You know, Obama has not endorsed Biden. None of the Clintons have endorsed Biden. Um, a lot of the people like Buttigieg and, and earlier in the campaign before she kind of faded. Now I think although she can't fully rule her out. Some of the establishment will also like Warren. So it's a little bit divided. I mean, it's, it's potentially more accurate to describe Biden's uh, major constituency as African-Americans, which have given him an, an unbelievable amount of trust and deference for a variety of complex factors. But that that's his real base. And, and accordingly, he's, al- he's almost the de facto Southern candidate, because that's where a lot of that vote is concentrated in the Democratic primary. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, yes, Biden has a lack of a comfort zone in the modern Democratic Party, and I think you see that stylistically in his, his, his wars with Bernie, uh, but also just like, you know, he, he makes huge, in my view, uh, policy and tactical errors in how he deals with young people where he says, you know, any, any discussion of the student loan issue is ridiculous, malarkey or whatever. I mean, that's just out of touch. Uh, that's, that's, that's no how, bueno. How about, how, uh, about, how about calling video game developers arrogant and creepy for teaching people how to kill? 
yes. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I think that's a little bit. I mean, like one is like saying video games are like super violent, and like the other one is like saying like you know like you should like not be able to form a family because of student loan debt. But I, I take your point. I, yeah. I, I would. Yeah. I would, Just sort I would of cultural take, tone deafness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the main. That's the main thing. And and, and you know, I mean, I, I think at a certain point. You know, he's he's been doing this for fifty years, and he's seventy-eight years old, I believe, or seventy-seven. Apologies, I'm the the year on by one year, but uh, you know, he he is who he is, right? Like like these guys in the seventies are not going to change. Trump, Bernie, Biden—they've got the approach that they're that just like they've got they've gotten this far. Sanders has changed the political conversation. Biden became vice president, and Trump became the president. They think what they do, they think their golf swing's pretty good, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, and and then and that's uh, you know that that's that's both uh, uh, a confidence thing, which is good, but also a limitation, ultimately. Um, I, I will say that, though, uh, if I were to get the nomination, uh, there's a viewpoint, potentially erroneous, that he is the easiest person uh, to help the Democrats pick off the state they lost. Like, simply, like, the Democrats want to return to power in some form. God knows what they'll do with that power. Uh, but, like, because uh, he knows the party's divided. Thank you. Uh, the... Uh, I would say that basically the, the idea is that Biden is the easiest to pick up Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan again. He is Kurt Mills, senior writer at American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Kurt Mills, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and i gotta go back to something that uh aoc socialist spice girl under the world spice a member of the Socialist Spice Girls, said uh, earlier this week, we played it, but it bears repeating, particularly following our discussion with Curtis Mills about uh, the state of the Democratic Party, which is basically a state of implosion. He was arguing reminiscent of 2004, and you remember how that worked out for John Kerry. Here's what AOC says about uh, her party today. And remember, she is a Bolshevik Bernie acolyte. We don't have a left party mm. in the United States. Mm. The Democratic Party is not a left party. Um, the Democratic Party is a center or center conservative party. Center or center conservative party. Now, I'll, I'll exclude Bernie because he's the sort of communist revolutionary that she wants. So he represents an outsider that would change this center conservative party. What about Elizabeth Warren? Elizabeth Warren yesterday, Reuters reporting, sent a, a letter to uh, big U.S. banks demanding that they provide information about how they are going to address climate change. You know, this against the backdrop of uh, all the billionaires in Davos for the week to protect themselves and the economy from climate driven catastrophes. Large financial institutions must act quickly to address risks, wrote Warren, not a fan of banks. In the same way, like Adam Schiff is not a fan of courts. I write to ask for more information about the risks caused by climate crisis on the financial industry and at your institution's practices, including what steps, if any, your institution is taking to adapt to mitigate these risks. And, of course, Reuters' objective news outlet adds its own editorial commentary 
masquerading as straight news reporting. Over the past year, a surge in natural disasters caused or exacerbated by warming temperatures, including brush fires in Australia, uh, bushfires, excuse me, in Australia, have driven climate change up the political agenda around the world, sparked protest demanding action. None of what is contained in that paragraph is actually true. I mean, certainly not in context. The bushfires in Australia, it would be nice to include the fact that 180 people have been arrested for arson. That might have something to do with the uh, routine bushfires in Australia being more devastating than normal. May have something to do with that. 180 people uh, allegedly committing arson. Okay. Have driven climate change up the political agenda around the world. You know, only in the rarefied air of the Champagne Socialists, those, say, for example, providing transportation to uh, Greta Thunberg around the world, sparking protest, demanding action. I guess if you consider Greta Thunberg a uh, uh, speaking, speechifying at Davos among uh, the elites of the elites of the elites of the world, I guess that's uh, sparking a global protest, demanding action. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, otherwise, it's all just confused with people that are just perpetually looking to deindustrialize the U.S. economy, but amid all signs, uh, all kinds of other confusing Marxist agenda points from trans rights to uh, I don't veganism. Uh, but but it, it hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped this pursuit of deindustrialization, and this seems to me a central example of the. The framing of 2020 being capitalism or markets versus a government centric economy, government driven economy. This is what Jamie Dimon was talking about in his uh, uh, interview with CNBC that uh, we'll get to a little bit later in the show when we talk to University of Texas business school professor John Sibley Butler. Uh, However, incompletely, since Dimon doesn't want socialism, but he's a rent seeker. He's not really a true free marketeer, and thus this is why it gets confusing. But I I digress. I want to stick on this issue of climate change. It it just can't be repeated enough. This is not denial. It's actually embracing science. And this is going to be important for President Trump to do and Republican congressional candidates to do in 2020 to be able to stand up to the ignorance and the histrionics of the left when it comes to this these end times predictions the shaming and also the underlying shameful policies krugman despite everything we know that has been wrong about the models about the dire predictions going back 50 years paul krugman who should be more focused on making sure his twitter account doesn't get hacked by child pornographers allegedly, continues to be one of the false prophets. Apocalypse becomes normal. This is a Nobel Prize winner in economics. Remarkable. But he's a political operative first. Florida as a whole will eventually be swallowed by the sea. Much of India will eventually become uninhabitable. This is what Paul Krugman wrote two weeks ago. Here are the facts. John Tamney has a good piece of realclearmarkets.com that goes through the science as we actually know it. And with humility as to what we don't know. Which is interesting. You get a lot of humility from the scientists we talk to on this show, actual scientists, about what is known and unknown. And there's no humility. There is no doubt from Paul Krugman or the, the young people they use as mascots for their power grab masquerading as heroism. No humility 
no doubt they got it all figured out. And it's just been a rinse and repeat for at least the last half century with these eschatological predictions like Paul Krugman made in the New York Times two weeks ago. First, getting to the facts, the science. The Earth's temperature has been rising at a microscopically slow pace. NASA's data set for global temperatures goes back to 1880, shows that since that year, the Earth's temperature has risen by 1.14 degrees Celsius. 1.14 degrees Celsius over 139 years translates to an average increase of 8 one-thousandths of a percent Celsius per year. Uh, And, of course, the uh, models that predicted uh, significant warming just 30 years ago by 2020, that's the year and we're now, were off by a factor of six. Uh, Second, a warmer Earth actually saves lives. In 2015, the uh, prestigious medical journal, formerly prestigious, The Lancet, reported that worldwide cold kills 17 times more people than heat. A group of 22 scientists examined more than 74 million deaths in the United States, China, Brazil, 10 other countries between the years 85, 1985 and 2012. They found that cold caused 7.29% of these deaths, while heat caused 0.42%. So if you're interested in saving lives, third, while the Earth's temperature has risen, the number of natural disaster deaths has been sharply declining, also contrary to the predictions of Devastating storms getting more and more severe, inflicting more and more uh, death. Fourth, the global air population death rate has fallen by almost 50 percent since 1995. Any impact on the economy is likely to be minimal. We talked about this the other day, that the uh, net carbon uh, impact is anywhere from negative in terms of social costs to slightly positive, but it is marginal. Finally, Restricting carbon emissions to attempt global warming is the wrong path. Even the most severe restrictions will have almost zero impact on the Earth's temperature. This, uh, according to climatologist Patrick Michaels, who calculated that if the United States eliminated all carbon emissions, all carbon emissions, if they fully deindustrialize, we fully, we fully deindustrialize, fully embrace the Green New Deal, rode our bikes everywhere, powered everything with windmills and solar panels and switchgrass, it would reduce global warming by... 0.052 degrees Celsius by 2050. False prophets of global warming. They're going to need to be confronted in 2020. This is the Dan Prof Show. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We talked about the story of Delonte West the other day. I want to pick it up with some uh, expert testimony in a minute just to reset the table. Four years ago, a former NBA standout, Delonte West, was seen wandering around outside of Jack in the Box in Houston looking disheveled. In 2016, he was photographed in ragtag attire with a cardboard sign on the side of the road in Maryland. And this week, there was viral video that was posted 
with him getting the stuffing kicked out of him in the middle of the uh, looked like an expressway. Uh, and this uh, was the apparently fairly well-known descent of Delonte West since he left the NBA after making $16 million during his career as a guard for the NBA. You've had college teammates of his, Jameer Nelson, most notably, he's also an NBA player. They played together at St. Joe's. Phil Martelli used to coach them, uh, coach St. Joe's, coach both of those players. Outpouring of support. Jameer Nelson suggesting that in 2008, Delonte West was diagnosed bipolar. And uh, the question I had, and I don't know the answer to it, but does this have anything to do with heavy drug usage generally, marijuana usage specifically, the the apparent uh, battle with mental illness that Delonte West has been undergoing? I don't know, but I'm asking the question because Delonte West was one of those players who was known as, celebrated as really a heavy marijuana user. Now, marijuana is ubiquitous in the NBA, um, and uh, it's not hidden either. But uh, most of the players, at least according to you know some insiders who are talking about this now, about drug use generally in the NBA, they, uh, people are not necessarily heavy users, but of course some people are. And what are the implications of heavy usage of marijuana in a time where you have states rushing to legalize it for the purposes of generating revenue. And it's not legalizing it with caution. It's legalizing it with enthusiasm. Go do this. This is government aligned against the interests of its citizens. So many expressions of this we see. Red light cameras, for another example. Don't smoke, but actually we need you to smoke because we're putting more taxes on it that we've already spent for all kinds of wonderful things, at least we allege. If it's such a terrible thing, why don't you ban it? We don't want to ban it because we want the revenue stream. State of Illinois Lieutenant uh, Governor, her name is Juliana Stratton, on the occasion January 1st of Illinois' legalization of marijuana and the opening of dispensaries around the state, she went to one on the north side of Chicago and said this. Clementine orange or Clementine orange gummies. Are you going to partake? Well, I I might try one. It's legal in Illinois. (laughs) Is this a laughing matter? For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter and the author of the book, Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Alex, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prop Show. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks so much for having me. So is this a laughing matter? Is this something that should be culturally hip? (laughs) Well, I mean, what's very interesting is that cannabis is still federally illegal. So, uh, you know, she's breaking the law. Um, uh, the rule you know, of law just, is a, uh, sort of like a maybe thing in Chicago, just as a general <laughs> rule. Yeah. Um, you know, but but she's you know she's an elected official of the of the federal government or the federal of the you know the Illinois state government, and she's breaking federal law. Um, now, obviously, there'll be no consequences for her for that because you know in the state of Illinois, there there's not going to be law enforcement against cannabis possession, and and it's not like the DEA is going to swoop in and arrest her. But you know, let's be clear, she's violating the law. Um, so, uh, you know, is it a laughing matter? No, unfortunately it is portrayed that way, uh, you know, in a lot of the elite media. And I think actually, um, you know, we're starting to see some pushback and, uh, and there, and there's starting to be some high profile cases of people who've really suffered from their cannabis use. 
Um, but we have a long, long way to go. Uh, I, I want to um, just we got to take a break shortly, but I, I want you to uh, just comment on whether or not you think raising the issue of, of potential heavy marijuana use in the Delante West case is a reasonable question to ask. Even if we don't know the answer to it, should we be asking it? Yes, I think it's a very it's a reasonable question to ask because he was known uh, to be a, a heavy user. And and a lot of the uh, you know facts of the case are very striking. Um you know, he he uh, he said he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and then he sort of later backed away from that. And that's sort of a common theme when there's substance abuse combined with some potential mental illness. Is that psychiatrists often have a hard time making a diagnosis. Um, he seems to have had a steady decline that has worsened. Um, and at the same time, you know, this is a guy who really made a success of himself in the you know in the early aughts basically purely on his work ethic. He was not, you know, LeBron James. He was not the right. most talented player in the NBA. He did this, and look where he is right now. I mean, clearly something, uh, you know, terrible has happened to him in the last few years. He is Alex Barron said, former New York Times reporter, the book Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. We're going to come back with Alex and talk about the connection between heavy marijuana usage, and we'll distinguish that, and uh, mental illness uh, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Alex Berenson on The Dan Proft Show. Alex is a former New York Times reporter who covered the pharmaceutical industry an author of Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. And we were talking about the Delante West case. But before we get uh, deeper into the connection between um, marijuana and mental illness, the potential connections, the research here, just a little bit of your backstory, Alex, because, you know, you didn't come to this as a prohibitionist. Uh, you, uh, and you come to it with some reporting, not specifically on this, but on pharmaceutical drugs generally. Um, and uh, so how you came to to identify this as an issue you really wanted to dig into? Sure. Um, so I was a reporter for The New York Times for 10 years um, and a, really an investigative reporter from the time I graduated college in 1994 through 2010. Um, I, you know, mainly uh, mainly a business investigative reporter. And, um, you know, one of the problems that the cannabis advocates have with me is it's very hard to pin me down as this, you know, that I'm some conservative, super moralist, that, you know, that, that I hate people who use drugs. None of that is true. Um, you know, I view this as a public health issue and an issue of a failure of journalism. And the reason I got into it really is that my wife, who's a psychiatrist, you know, said to me, that, that the way psychiatrists view cannabis, especially forensic psychiatrists who deal with the criminally mentally ill, is totally different than the way you know people on the outside and certainly the media promote it. And um, and honestly, I didn't really believe her at first, but I looked at the evidence and I realized that she was correct. And I realized that I really needed to write a book about this. Tell us uh, oh, the uh, per your research what you found in terms of uh, the connections. Uh, between marijuana use and, and heavy marijuana use and sure. psychosis, temporary or even permanent, but perhaps in the case of Delante West. Sure. So um, so clearly cannabis use can cause temporary psychosis. Um, and psychosis, by the way, that's the term that psychiatrists use when 
somebody has a break from reality. They might have hallucinations or delusions. They might get really paranoid or panicky. I think, um, you know, I think even regular cannabis users really wouldn't argue that, that, you know, they'd call it a bad trip or a bad night and they'd maybe make light of it. But that happens very frequently to people who are using high dose cannabis. I mean, I'm not saying it happens all the time, but it happens with regularity. So, so that's, that's sort of beyond dispute. The question is whether or not heavy use of cannabis, especially if you're starting as a teenager, especially if you're using daily, especially if you're using really high potency cannabis or THC, which is the active ingredient cannabis, that's what gets people high. The question is, if you're using that, does it increase the risk for you to develop schizophrenia or other really terrible permanent um, psychotic conditions, um, essentially make you permanently mentally ill? And unfortunately, there is now quite a bit of evidence that that's true. Now, I wouldn't say the case has been proven. Um, and I think there are, you know, smart psychiatrists out there who think we need more evidence. But there's a lot of evidence already. And this should certainly be part of our conversation around legalizing this drug. It should be a big part of it because, because psychosis and schizophrenia are such terrible conditions. Right. And it's not like uh, you uh, and many others are running around saying you smoke a joint, you're going to develop schizophrenia. There's no need to overstate the case. No one is saying that. Right. You're just just asking questions and they say, shouldn't we uh, express a note of caution because of some of what has been uh, discovered about these connections, uh, whether they're correlations or there's direct causation? Let's continue, you know, the debate isn't over, but let's continue to study it and stop celebrating it like you're cool if you go do this. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, people like to, the cannabis industry and cannabis advocates, they like to try to caricature me and, you know, and other, and other you know, other people who've studied the science here. Um, and they say, oh, everybody's saying reefer madness. You know, you, as you said, you smoke one joint, you lose your mind. Nobody is saying that. Yeah. And by the way, if you smoke one cigarette, you don't get lung cancer. Right. This is about a continuum of risk and, and, and how strong the evidence is. And at what point do we start saying, you know what, we really need to think twice before we legalize. And we certainly, even if we're going to legalize, we need to, we need to think really uh, strongly about how we allow this drug to be promoted, whether we celebrate it in the culture um, let me give you another example, actually, of a basketball player who's had trouble with THC very recently. In this case, there's no question that THC caused um, the incident, which is Dion Waiters, who's, in, who's, a, who's a player for the Miami Heat. And he had what was described as a um, bad reaction or a panic attack on a flight between Phoenix and Los Angeles after somebody gave him THC gummies um, for his anxiety. And, you know, and, and believe me, I don't know what happened on that flight. I don't know that any of us ever will. But if it was bad enough that the that the paramedics had to be waiting for him at, at LAX when that plane landed, that that was not going to be a comfortable flight for anybody. Well, and, and also, too, uh, another underappreciated uh, aspect of the legalization movement in present day is that today's weed isn't uh, isn't uh, the weed of the boomers at Woodstock. No, it's so much stronger, and and I'm and I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, you know, when when people so so I I'm in my mid 40s, so um, and I used cannabis a handful of times in college and after, and what I was smoking probably was five percent THC. 
that would barely be considered um, cannabis today. If you go into a store in a place where it's legal, like like Illinois or Colorado, you're going to buy 25 percent, uh, you know, cannabis flower that's 25 percent THC. That's five times as strong. And they might also try to sell you these edibles, which are basically pure THC extract, you know, in a gummy or in a chocolate. So, so this is a totally different product. And one thing that you know that I think is is, is a really interesting point about this is. You think about cigarettes, okay? Think about tobacco. We smoke tobacco as human beings for a long time. And, you know, lung cancer was not very common. When did lung cancer become common? When the cigarette industry developed and sort of mechanized and weaponized tobacco and turned it into a different product. And to some extent, that's what's happened with cannabis in the United States in the last 15 or 20 years. He is Alex Berenson. He's a former New York Times reporter, as you heard. He's the author of the book, Tell Your Children, the truth about marijuana, mental illness, and violence. Alex, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks so much for having me. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, those corporate marketing whizzes have done it again over at Kraft Foods, specifically planters. They already got the nation talking about their Super Bowl commercial. Two weeks out, Mr. Peanut, the mascot of planters, something big is going to happen to him. Well, it's already happened. And no, it's not him becoming Mrs. Peanut, which is probably a good guess. That's what I would have thought if I hadn't read the story. Mr. Peanut, after 104 years, is no more. I'm just dying in your arms tonight. Oh, look out! Abandon that! Oh, we're too heavy. Matt, let go. No, you let go. Hey, Mr. Peanut, no, you don't. Don't do it, Mr. Peanut. No! No! Maybe he'll be all right. Maybe not. It closes with uh, Mr. Peanut, 1916 to 2020, and the Super Bowl ad forthcoming from Planters. I don't know if it'll feature Wesley Snipes and Matt Walsh from Veep. Those were the two actors in that one. Probably good news for Wesley Snipes, uh, make enough money to stay on this side of uh, the IRS. I don't know if they'll be in as pallbearers for the commercial, but it will be a funeral. Mr. Peanut's funeral will be the Planters Super Bowl ad, I guess reinventing that brand, and probably they need to in this day and age where peanuts are uh, a public health epidemic, uh, at least in some quarters. That's the way they're treated. Isn't it bizarre what's happened since, say, the time of my childhood to now, these peanut allergies? It wasn't even a thing just just a few decades ago. Uh, and now it's, you, you know, you can't even have peanuts in a, in a lunchroom any, with, because of a number of peanut allergies and this and that. Uh, and it reminded me of uh, Louis C.K.'s riff on this. I don't know if it's uh, verboten to play Louis C.K., but I'm going to do it anyway. Children who have nut allergies need to be protected. Of course. 
We have to segregate their food from nuts, have their medication available at all times, and anybody who manufactures or serves food needs to be aware of deadly nut allergies. Of course. But maybe, maybe if touching a nut kills you, you're supposed to die. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. Of course not. Jesus. I have a nephew who has that. I'd be devastated if something happened to him. But maybe, <laughs> maybe, if we all just do this for one year, we're done with nut allergies forever. No, 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 no. Just hide your eyes. Uh, no, 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 no. And if you've got a peanut allergy, send your comments and criticisms to Louis C.K., not me. One other uh, funny note. The estate of Mr. Peanut is a Twitter handle, of course, part of the marketing campaign. We're devastated to confirm that Mr. Peanut is gone. He died doing what he did best, having people's backs when they needed him most, yes, saving Wesley Snipes and Matt Walsh. Uh, also, <laughs> a tweet uh, over at the estate of Mr. Peanut. I have information that will lead to the arrest of Hillary Clinton. There's no high-profile death that can include or that uh, doesn't include a conspiracy theory and one involving the Clintons, most notably. This is the Dan Prop Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. Jamie Dimon, of course, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, in Davos with a bunch of other billionaires and the president. Diamond took time away from the conference to uh, visit with folks at CNBC and build off of this op-ed he wrote for Time talking about capitalism versus socialism, since that's part of the frame of the 2020 election, and how dangerous going down the path of socialism, as, say, the likes of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren want us to do, would be for American society. I don't think they understand. Honestly, I don't think people understand what socialism is. Socialism is when the government controls companies. There is no example where the government controls companies, they do it well, and they don't start to use it for votes, mm. satisfying people. They don't even want competition because if we're two government companies, you know, why have competition? Why do They do it for jobs and votes. They have bad allocation of capital. Most state-owned enterprises don't do a particularly good job. You, you take a look around the world, and they become corrupt over time. Do you that does not that, mean that capitalism is perfect. Do you it think doesn't that, mean that every public company is perfect. No, they're flaws. Do you think that you know, Bernie it, Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are socialists in the construct that you talked about it, or in the construct of this idea of a democratic socialist, which is something that may feel more European in some ways. I don't want to talk about any particular people, but if, gov if you're talking about governments controlling corporations, that's socialism. You can do it in a small way or you can do it in a big way. The small way is to put a commissar on your board. Remember the old Russian commissars? You know, that's all. Oh, they're just going to sit in the room or do it through regulatory or stuff like that. The other way is that they actually own the company. And, you know, that's where if you look at all these other countries, they start to take over the oil companies and, and the right. steel companies and the utility companies. And, and the banks. Market, and the <laughs> banks. And then the banks start making loans not to a good company, not because they're probably allocating capital to its highest and best use, but to keep that factory open, right. the bridge to nowhere to make sure the mayor doesn't lose jobs in his town. And once you do that, you will have an eroding society. Yeah, uh, Jamie Dimon, like so many of these guys, has the diagnosis largely right. The remedy, though, 
is wrong. Spent too much time at heading up rent-seeking banks, I suppose. In his piece and time that I mentioned, he writes, capitalism must be modified to do a better job of creating a healthier society, one that is more inclusive, creates more opportunity for more people. That means meaningful changes like rebuilding our education system and providing skills training, affordable health care policies, substantial infrastructure investment, sensible immigration reform, and climate policies. That's just a start. That's not the start. I mean, who, who am I to disagree with the great Jamie Dimon? Well, I mean... So I'm going to disagree. That's not the start. The start is, in my view, doing something that we don't do, not some things that we try to do. We just do badly, like education and not just saying education. What specifically? How about preparing children to be business savvy, teaching entrepreneurship at the K through 12 level? That doesn't mean everybody has to go on to be an entrepreneur. I'm not man of the left. Everybody has to be a coder. If you're in an industry I don't like, like, say, being a coal miner. But what about rooting children in the market economy and teaching them what entrepreneurship really means, the value of capital and labor, how you organize a enterprise. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by John Sibley Butler. He is the J. Marion West Chair for Constructive Capitalism in the Graduate School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Also, uh, before we even get into capitalism, we have to congratulate him because he uh, did his undergraduate work at LSU. So, Professor Butler, congratulations on your national championship. Go Tigers. Say ball. Come on, survive. Everything is good. I like that. You guys are wonderful. Yeah, what a you, welcome. Uh, Professor, I, I'm, I'm familiar with some of your scholarship, and so so just talking about this issue of capitalism versus socialism against the backdrop of the 2020 election and this notion of entrepreneurship, how can we make capitalism better seems to be part of the discussion so as to stave off socialism. One of the things that you have written about is the so-called algorithm for group success. Describe what that is for us. The algorithm is that market economies begin with individuals and families and communities. From these families and communities grow great enterprises. So, for example, some of the great peace enterprises came out out of these business enclaves. You can look at Chinatown, it exists today. So the point is that the closer you are to market economies, the more you take your problems to the market, the more successful you will be in America. So here in, in Texas, for example, we make entrepreneurs the heroes. We're very, very aware that if you look at market economies, we have created four times the amount of jobs than any other state in the in the union. And that's because we allow entrepreneurs, people on enterprises to be our heroes. If you look at my research, I celebrate the matter walkers in the world. So therefore, the algorithm is is founded on market economies and understanding market economies and how those market economies bring success. Great entrepreneurship also leads to better education outcomes. So if, if that's the algorithm of success, why the decline in entrepreneurship in the black community? Is that the result of not celebrating or knowing even to celebrate the history of entrepreneurship in uh, black Americans? Well, it's a decline in all American communities. If you look at Silicon Valley, for example, 50 to 60% of all those new companies are immigrants. So immigration have, have always been the core of everything. The black pattern follows the exact same pattern of America. What's interesting about the black pattern, uh, however, is that when there are difficult circumstances, people forget about how you got here. So what I do when I talk about uh, black America, I talk about celebrating another history of black America, which is the entrepreneurial spirit. So I'm not much of a uh, civil rights kind of guy. I'm more of a, a market kind of guy. Okay, I was born in Southern Louisiana. I grew up in a very, very interesting, uh, well-to-do family. Grandfather was an entrepreneur, sent all of his kids to college in the 1920s. My brother went to Indiana, Indiana University. Every Butler since the 1900s have been have, have graduated from college. Our aim is to show future generations that we are standing on the shoulders of self-employment and entrepreneurs. So if you look at where black America is today, 
there are black communities that, that are, that's booming. Chicago is different from Atlanta because of the history of entrepreneurship. That is, uh, the Atlanta black population, private schools, Morehouse, Spelman, have really, really generated that population. Great black communities, great suburbs. Take a city like Chicago that had a great entrepreneurial tradition in the past. It was very different from Atlanta because they did not own the property in Chicago. So therefore, what happens when the, when the factories disappear in northern cities, there's a lack of entrepreneurship, and people do not understand that you don't go to the politician. You buy up Chicago. By buying up Chicago, you create an analog of Chinatown in Chicago. You, you create a Morehouse. You create a Spelman. You create a Howard University. And all of that is, is dependent upon how entrepreneurs think about the world because you can't get that from the political point of view. There is a, um, a study out uh, of more than 3,000 small business owners that finds 87% of them are over the age of 39, 43% are over the age of 55, uh, and that dovetails with other studies that looked at sort of the demographics of the entrepreneur. Basically, uh, that you're talking about people that are a bit older, and it's mostly men, 73% are men. So uh, at the outset, I said you know, part of this is you know getting to business of business well before somebody wants to go get their MBA, making it part of our culture in K-12 through instruction. Uh, do you agree with that if we want to have uh, the entrepreneurs be a, a bit younger in terms of the median age and a bit more diverse in terms of the rest of those demographics? Absolutely, Dan, but let's look, at, let's look deeper into the numbers. Okay. If we look at the great companies of America that were founded in the last 40 years, whether it's Apple, whether it's Dell, whether it's Facebook, all of those were college kids. Michael Dell was 19 years old when he founded Dell Computers. The guy who founded Facebook was 12, <laughs> maybe 13. <laughs> right. all, all, of these, all of these great, great entrepreneurs came from students. Okay. So I, I distinguish between technology entrepreneurship, which creates and creates lots of jobs. So looking back historically and even now, I look at what Stanford University has done with Silicon Valley. I look at what the University of Texas has done with Austin. I look at what MIT has done with, with Boston. I look at what Northwestern University of Chicago has done. They have not done the same thing or the University of Illinois. So I agree, but the really high-tech stuff is coming from the younger population. The lifestyle entrepreneurs are done by older people, but I certainly agree this. I agree that if it's not coming from an entrepreneur family, you must put the whole idea of, of uh, self-employment, market economists, in American colleges, in American high schools, because if you look at the great entrepreneurs, they come from entrepreneur families that have been and have been passed on from generation to generation. Give us the state of black entrepreneurship, because I think my people might be surprised by your review. I I'd asked you this in an email exchange we had. And uh, in the digital age, you're, you're suggesting that uh, black entrepreneurship is actually really on the rise in a way that's uh, wildly underreported. Oh, well, everything that's successful in black America is, under, is, is underreported. Uh, you know, when you look at black America, people like to go to the weakest, weakest link of black America. So black entrepreneurship is booming. On the corner of, I mean, on the cover of Black Enterprise about eight years ago, we had uh, seven black entrepreneurs from Austin, Texas, whose receipts had reached uh, 60 million to 70 million a year. And of course, it's much harder to study in the digital age. But what happens is it is really, really being boasted by immigrant Africans. Uh, so if you look at what's happening in, with Africans, like all of the, all other all immigrants, they're really, really into the market economies. They come to America to create wealth. If you look at the education of their children, it is off the scale. At Macomb School of Business, I would say that at my undergraduate, 98% of the black kids are Africans. And that's the same pattern at the Ivy League School. So it is booming. It's booming in a way in the sense that it is interacting with the African immigration. Because African immigrants run into this, this civil rights kind of um, uh, uh, attitude that really, really perpetuates the, uh, the black community. 
as a political attitude. But when you study this and you look at uh, African immigration, and you can see that the Africans are giving a great, great contribution to that. He is Professor John <laughs> Sibley Butler, J. Marion West Chair for Constructive Capitalism, the Graduate School of Business at the University of Texas, and proud Bayou Bengal. Professor Butler, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. You betcha. Take care. For the funky Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Fun little piece at American Thinker. Forget uh, all the discussion of uh, witness trading. Dare I say quid pro quoing? Bolton for one or more of the Bidens. The real witness that House Republicans should call is Obama. Yeah. I'll call Obama who made Biden. Right. Call the boss, not his ambassador, who made Biden his point man for Ukraine. Have him answer for Biden quid pro quoing Ukrainian authorities at the time in his, as he famously described before the Council of Foreign Relations, where he said you either fire that prosecutor. And there were allegations of corruption that surrounded him, but he was also investigating Burisma. And there were allegations of corruption surrounding the ownership of Burisma on which Hunter Biden, the board of which Hunter Biden sat, of course, and said, you know, you either get rid of him or you lose a billion dollars in loan guarantees for the United States. Call Obama. That would be something. Trump wants to testify, so he says. I don't think he uh, really means it, but he he wants to testify. He was asked in an interview with Maria Bartiromo whether he wants witnesses or how how does he think this end? What's the best outcome uh, of the impeachment trial? These people are liars. They're horrible. I watched this guy shifty shift. I watched him for a little while. So yesterday I had meetings all over the place. But in between meetings, I get to see... And I watch his lies. I I watch where they've actually played a rerun, which they shouldn't even do. It was so bad. Where he goes before Congress and he makes a statement that I made. And it was a total fraud. I never made it. He made it up. That's why I released the conversation. Because if I didn't release it, people would have said that I made the statement that he made. This guy's a fraud. He's a corrupt politician. So I think, you know, I'm pretty much going to leave that to the senators. I have a lot of respect for him. I can say this. The Republican Party has never been so unified. You've seen that, too. 195 or 196 to nothing in the House twice. Uh, Three Democrats came to our side. And I think we're going to have some people come to our side. No, it's a hoax. It's a terrible thing. And it's a hoax. And he essentially says, I guess, probably a quick acquittal is the best thing. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Hindraker, president of the Center for the American Center of the American Experiment and uh, contributor to PowerlineBlog.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, guys. Well, Hunter Biden may or may not appear before the Senate, but he is being whistled in to appear in a court in Arkansas. Uh, The uh, judge uh, in a paternity case uh, approving an order to appear and show cause because Hunter Biden isn't turning over the necessary financial records for her to make a determination on how much child support he should be paying his baby mom in Arkansas. So we have that that trial going on concurrent with the Senate impeachment one. Well, for those who maybe haven't followed that story, Hunter Biden, uh, Joe Biden's son, uh, got a Washington, D.C. stripper pregnant. Uh, She has now had the baby, has sued him 
for child support. He denied that he was the father, took a DNA test that showed he was indeed the father. And so this, this woman is, you know, is coming after him for child support. And the timing is really unfortunate because Hunter Biden is a ne'er-do-well who got kicked out of the army for illegal drug use and has never really had a job. And, and he really does not want to make public his uh, financial records at this point in time. All right. Well, let's talk about the 2020 race then. Uh, there's been a, an interesting series of articles over the last couple of days about some issues that uh, have nothing to do with impeachment that uh, could actually materially impact the outcome because of their importance in particular states. One is uh, the moves by the Warrens and the Bernies of the world to ban fracking in states where fracking has meant an economic boom, including states like Pennsylvania. Uh, Another is the Second Amendment sanctuary movement uh, in places that some deep blue states, including Virginia, which I would call a blue state now, and Illinois, our home here, which is definitely a blue state. But the sanctuary, Second Amendment sanctuary movement is afoot. Yet 400 uh, local units of government around the country in response to gun grabbers like Ralph Northam and some of the Democrat socialist presidential candidates. And then this other piece by Jason Riley in The Wall Street Journal where he explained why Cory Booker and Kamala Harris didn't find the same electoral success as President Obama. They tried to accentuate race and demagogue race, where President Obama, during his run in 2008, uh, tried to downplay it. And uh, Obama, I mean, excuse me, Booker and Kamala clearly aren't the only ones trying to use race as a cudgel. So those issues, economic issues like fracking, uh, cultural issues like Second Amendment rights, and uh, the, the politics of race, too, all of those could actually be part of the smorgasbord of issues that materially impact the 2020 election. I think they're going to impact it a lot. You know, President Trump gave a great speech in Davos, and the only thing that got covered was his little back and forth with Greta Thunberg, you know, the Swedish teenager. But that speech was overwhelmingly about the success of the American economy over the last three or four years and the success of the free market policies, light regulation policies that the Trump administration has implemented. And that's just poison. You know, that's poison to these international elites, uh, you know, because it reflects badly on them. You know, we're the ones with the booming economy. You know, it's not France. It's not Germany. It's not England. It's us. And, um, and, and the Democrats are constantly trying to talk about anything but the successes, the economic successes, especially of the Trump administration. But people who live in states that benefit from fracking know it. And uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's going to be a, a big issue in, in states like Ohio and, uh, and Pennsylvania. And, and I think on race, you know, I've actually been present a couple of times with President Trump and smallish groups of young blacks, groups of like 300. And Trump relates really, really well to African-Americans. You know, he really does. He likes them. They like him. You can really see it. And, um, you know, the Democrats uh, continue to have this this, uh, theory that they can just browbeat uh, African-Americans into voting for them as if it's a duty, you know, when in fact they've done nothing for blacks. It's the Trump administration, like the Reagan administration, by the way. Uh, that, that, has, that has promoted economic growth, and, and that's what helps working people, economic growth, uh, you know, African-Americans and Hispanics and others. You know, so I think that Trump is going to do shockingly well uh, among both African-Americans and Hispanics, and I think it's going to be a big factor in 2020. Hillary Clinton, you know, I mean, she deserves at least uh, partial credit for Trump's victory in 2016. She may end up 
uh, earning partial credit for his reelection in 2020. Well, I hope so. Uh, I hope he gets reelected. You know, the, 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 this whole impeachment thing, I mean, it, it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's, it's, as, a, as a legal theory, you know, as a constitutional theory, it, it's ridiculous. But, but, but the Democrats know that, and they know that they can't get a two-thirds vote in the Senate. They're not even trying. I mean, they know that. But what they, what they believe is if they day after day after day get thousands of newspaper headlines, and of course the newspapers will cooperate, the evening news will cooperate, putting Trump and impeachment in the same sentence, that that wears down Trump's support. And I think they're right about that. I mean, by rights, with his record, Trump should be at about a 75% approval rating. And I, and I think they have succeeded with this stupid Russia hoax, you know, now with the impeachment fraud uh, and constantly roiling the waters, constantly smearing the president. And they're hoping that one of their lousy candidates can sneak across the finish line because of all the smoke they've created around the president. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure they're wrong about that. I, I hope they're wrong, but we're going to find out. Yeah, and uh, the good news also about the Senate impeachment trial is that you've got uh... – uh, time to catch up on your crossword puzzles like Rand Paul was doing yesterday. Uh, he needs a little help with a six-letter word for pathological. And I, I think Schiff fits nicely into that slot. Uh, John well, Hendr- Go ahead, John. I haven't seen any ratings, but I can't imagine that any significant number of people are actually watching this nonsense. Although I will say that the more people who see Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler in action, probably the better for the Republicans. John Hendraker, president of the Center of the American Experiment and contributor at PowerlineBlog.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I want to piggyback on the conversation we just had with John Hendraker from PowerlineBlog.com. Uh, this piece in The Hill, TheHill.com, by Mark Penn, who's a former Clintonista, Clinton pollster, uh, part of the administration back during the last impeachment when it was President Clinton. Um, before we do that, though, uh, the setup here is a question that, uh, that Representative Crow uh, from Colorado, one of the House Democrat managers, made uh, Jason Crow, who served in Afghanistan, comparing um, his service, using his service in Afghanistan to make a argument about uh, the importance of military aid to Ukraine. Here's Representative Crow. In 2005, I was an Army Ranger serving in a special operations task force in Afghanistan. We were at a remote operating base along the Afghan-Pakistan border. And frequently, the insurgents that we were fighting would launch rockets and missiles onto our small base. But luckily, we were provided with counter-battery radar. So 20, 30, 40 seconds before those rockets and mortars rained down on us, an alarm would sound. And we would run out from our tents and jump in to our concrete bunkers and wait for the attack to end. This is not a theoretical exercise, and the Ukrainians know it. For Ukraine aid from the U.S. actually constitutes about 10% of their military budget. It's safe to say that they can't fight effectively without it. That's a fair point that uh, lives are on the line, Uh, but uh, two additional points in response. 
One is, and it's made by Mark Penn, I just made a uh, reference in his piece in the hill.com. Uh, Trump's policy with respect to Ukraine was, in fact, far more helpful to the Ukrainians than President Obama's policies that deny them much aid for weapons then, isn't it, Representative Crow? Wouldn't you have to concede that point? Uh, so concerned about uh, the Ukrainians having lethal aid from the United States in order to defend themselves against the Russians? There was no and is no urgent threat to national security of the United States, argues Mark Penn. Whether or not uh, you believe that, uh, Ukraine's an ally, uh, Russia's an adversary, we want to help our allies. That's the position Jason Crow's taking. That's the position President Trump took. And even if you think that there was an effort afoot to leverage the aid for uh, a uh, investigation into Burisma and the Bidens, that there was a quid pro quo. Of course, there was no quid pro ever consummated, but there was a guilty effort. And we don't want to get into the business of the ends justifying the means, the ends being that uh, Ukraine got their raid and President Trump didn't get the investigation he allegedly, well, he did want, but he allegedly made contingent on the aid. That didn't happen. But even if you concede, you know, guilty motives, illicit motives, is that impeachable? That's what we're talking about here, too. Even take in in the light least favorable to Trump, Representative Crow, given the importance of conferring the aid is what the president did impeachable, such that he should be removed from office. I'd love to be able to follow up with Jim Crow, with uh, Jason Crow on, uh, the, on that uh, score. Maybe some senator in written questioning will ask him that question. Um, so that's one point. The other thing is, uh, Representative Crow, doesn't uh, your argument provide the basis for if we're going to have witnesses, Republicans to call Biden Inc., Hunter and Joe, in whichever order. You just said that the live effectively said lives were on the line. That's what you're implying. Every minute counts. We this aid was so important. Well, then wouldn't you want to know if, uh, number one, Joe Biden, why he held up a billion dollars in loan guarantees to the Ukrainians uh, until and unless the previous administration fired the prosecutor he wanted fired that uh, admittedly there were allegations of corruption surrounding him. He was also investigating Breesman. There's allegations of corruption surrounding the ownership structure, oligarchical as it is of Burisma. So now you've just provided the legitimate basis to have the investigation that the president, that the president Trump wanted rather ironic. Mark Penn also shares a uh, call he received in 1998 from President Clinton. And when we come back, I just want to uh, review what Mark Penn says about impeachment, given that uh, he was there at the last one and how impeachment affects the country and its operation in more ways than are readily apparent. We'll have more on uh, this topic of impeachment, this angle on the topic when we come back for more of the Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, talking about uh, the uh, argument that Representative Jason Crow, Democrat, Colorado, one of the House managers, made on uh, Tuesday afternoon about the importance of the military aid from the United States to Ukraine. And, uh, you know, then comparing that to the fact that, well, it wasn't conferred in the Obama administration. So in point of fact, uh, the outcome that uh, Representative Crow and so many Democrats wanted for Ukraine didn't occur until President Trump assumed the office. And even if you think that he was uh, doing it for, at least in part, illicit motives, uh, trying to leverage the aid that had been approved by Congress, ultimately they got the aid and no investigation into Burisma or the Bidens was ever launched. Mark Penn uh, calling for an end to this impeachment and the way he describes is interesting. Mark Penn, again, former Clinton pollster and impeachments, government shutdown. It brings things to a halt. It also changes the calculus of the chief executive of the United States in ways that maybe are not readily apparent. And potentially dangerous. Uh, Mark Penn talking about his time in the Clinton White House. But impeachments have hidden costs, which is a strong reason I have consistently opposed them. In 1998, I received a 2 a.m. call from President Clinton asking me if he should send some missiles to get a really bad dude, quote unquote. Or would it seem like he was doing it to divert attention from impeachment? He fired the missiles, but they missed Osama bin Laden. 1998. Perhaps if he had gotten bin Laden, writes Penn, there might not have been a 9-11. In contrast, the successful attack on the Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, was, who was a declared terrorist by the Obama administration, during the Trump impeachment battle has been met with exactly the kind of skepticism that Clinton feared in 1998. And as a country, we showed division rather than unity against our number one foe, Iran. The hidden cost of impeachment. The hesitation by President Clinton, even though he made the right decision to try and take out bin Laden, despite failing to, it was the right call. Bin Laden was on the United States radar before 9-11. And the reaction to President Trump making the right call to take out a top terrorist of the lead state sponsor of terror and how that was met. Rather than national unity, we get this devolving into Uh, the sort of venal partisanship of the day. Mark Penn goes on. History, it seems, does repeat itself. George Washington's farewell address about the excesses of partisanship were never truer than today. As America's only true independent president, Washington predicted that the growth of factionalism would undermine the execution of our laws and that the alternate, uh, alternate domination of one party over another would lead to efforts to exact revenge and raise false alarms. Well, haven't those words borne out? Hmm. And it includes not just the current uh, impeachment matter, but the entire the entirety of the Trump administration, of course. Uh, Penn writes, we need to end this quickly, get back to the business of the country, then have an election. Like it or not, presidents are uniquely represent the elected will of the people. And because there is an electoral remedy, even more to the point. And and again, the posturing of 
House Democrats, really not just House Democrats, Democrats on the Hill, Democrat socialist candidates for president. Dan Henninger points this out in the Wall Street Journal. Think about uh, all of the uh, moralizing you've heard from Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler, uh, who have taken the opposite positions they've had on so many issues in order to pursue this impeachment gambit. And uh, the invocation by those with a passing uh, a passing fancy to uh, the, the Constitution about uh, the protecting the existing constitutional order. Is that what they're doing? Is that what's happening here? Those who would seek to remove the president from office on the basis they have put forward. They're protecting the existing constitutional order. That's their raison d'etre. That's what they went to Washington to do, is it? Uh, the progressive punch list this past three years as Henniger reminds us, abolish the Electoral College, pack the Supreme Court, remove a presidential impediment from office. This is uh, protecting the existing constitutional order. I mean, and there are many more. Those are just uh, three highlights. Getting, I go back to what uh, Penn said, too, about getting back to the business of the people and the things that we should be doing. We should be talking about Uh, that's what President Trump was doing in part at Davos, not just talking about what he accomplished, but in a sit down with Maria Bartiromo on Fox Business, talking about what's next for, you know, the people who elected him and 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 those who voted against him. We have never had before. Uh, We're going to be doing a middle class tax cut, very big one. We're going to be doing that. We have to win the House. And I think we can. I think we will win the House. I think the whole hoax with the impeachment hoax, I call it. I think that it really helps us in terms of the House. Was that a a tax cut for the middle class or do you just want to make that permanent? No, no, I'm going to make a tax cut and we're going to probably make the other permanent. It's got a long way to go in all fairness, but we're going to make that permanent for the middle class. So we'll be doing that. We'll be announcing it over the next 90 days. And there's much work to do on trade policy as well. Phase two with China, other trade agreements, most notably with the EU. And this is an area where I'm I'm generally uh, skeptical of the president's approach. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I certainly don't want things artificially being held up when there are agreements, say USMCA, by Pelosi and the Democrats, as was done with that trade deal per their impeachment gambit. Their political vengeance taking precedence over the people's business. Trump again with Bartiroma on uh, the deal that is to be had if there's going to be one with the EU. In terms of deficits, they have to do it. It's the right thing to do and they have to do it. And I did tell her, I said, look, I know we're going to make a deal, but if we don't, we're going to have to tear a few cars and other things coming into the United States. And they want to have like an emergency meeting and we'll we'll make a deal. Let me ask you, by the way, without that, Zero chance, just so you understand. Zero. But with that, 100%. Well, let me say 99%. And the hurry he's talking to is the new head of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, who's a German politician. I mean, these are important matters, and this is where the public's attention should be focused, not on this sideshow in the Senate. This is the damn problem. Listen, the more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'd like to end the show on a positive note as much as possible. This uh, case of the tax credit scholarship program in Montana that has been struck down by state courts as in making its way up to the Supreme Court. A school choice has been painstaking going all the way back to the uh, beginning of the century in the Zellman case, uh, which was the Cleveland school choice program. In that case, Chief Justice Rehnquist declaring that the school voucher program in uh, Cleveland, not in violation of the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause. He also deemed that government support for religion was constitutional as long as it didn't occur de jure, meaning by law, but de facto by choice and uh, failed to specify or to encourage religious schools. Cleveland's program was declared to be religiously neutral. Parents had true choice. They're making the decisions with the funds, thus the constitutionality of it. And it's ushered in a period of great expansion of school choice, particularly in urban centers where kids are otherwise discriminated against based on their household income and address, disproportionately minority kids. A couple of years ago, despite Democrat supermajorities in Illinois, tax credit scholarship program, the most aggressive in the nation, providing a $500 million cap over five years, $100 million a year in private funds to be contributed. And then those donors get a tax credit. But the Money is either attached to a particular school, directed to scholarships to a particular school, I should say, or it's part of a pool. The family can pull those resources, those scholarship resources, if they qualify, from that pool and then make a decision on school. Point is, like at the collegiate level, money is attached to the kid. The money follows the the kid and the family. Well, there's now a fight in Montana. At the state level, it's these absurd, bigoted Blaine amendments that are part of so many state constitutions that hopefully will be held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, or at least the Montana tax credit program will be deemed constitutional. This is... uh, a congressman from Maine in the late 1800s wanted to absolutely segregate all public funds being used for any sectarian purpose, regardless of who had the spending power. He was a anti-Catholic bigot. He was also anti-immigrant, ironically. So it's interesting how many of the left support these Blaine amendments. In fact, in Chicago, there's a school that my co-host on the morning show in Chicago Center kids named after James G. Blaine, who was a bigot. But anyway, the uh, program in Montana works not dissimilar to what I described the Illinois program, how that works. And in the Wall Street Journal, opining on about it, they uh, provide an example. Kendra Espinoza, an office assistant by day and janitor by night, the single mom had pulled her two daughters out of public school. One was bullied for studying the Bible during recess. She then enrolled them in a non-denominational Christian school and said, you know, it's just more in keeping with our family's values and it's a better fit for my kids. And so the scholarship money helped her be able to do that. And now that's something that uh, even in Montana, you have great resistance to. And it's really not in keeping the resistance coming from mainly Montana Democrats. It's really not in keeping with the provision even in the Montana Constitution as conceived and amended in 1972. The worry then was protecting religious liberty from the state. And now you have Democrats in this day and age using the state to infringe upon religious liberty. Thanks for joining us on the Dan Prop Show. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.